0: I'm a free black man, hold up my head black man, beautiful black man, I nah, don't ever feel nice man, I love your brother black man, then chase your dreams black man, and get that cream black man, we the original This man. is Iron Mike Stedman, and you're listening to Confessions of a Native Son, a black veteran's perspectives on race, culture, and business. I want to kick things off by discussing an article I read by Harvard Business Review, entitled, What Breaking the 4-Minute Mile Taught Us About the Limits of Critical Thinking. I'm sure many of you are aware who Roger Bannister is, the first person to break the 4-Minute Mile. And I think for me, Roger Bannister is a mental model of what's possible. In 1954, when he broke the 4-Minute Mile at 359.4 seconds, he was the first person to ever do it. People have been trying to break the four-minute mile since 1886. Some of the best track coaches in London, North America, and Australia couldn't figure it out. No one could. But when Bannister broke that four-minute mile, the article says that within 46 days, the next person broke it. And then a year later, three more people broke it, all in the same race. And since that time, thousands of people have broken the four-minute mile. And the reason Roger Bannister is a mental model for me is because I've just come to realize that I've had so many barriers in my mind regarding what's possible. But lately, I've been shattering those barriers and pushing past them last week I spent the week at, uh, Stanford university. You know, on a previous episode, I talked about how I received the Hoover veteran fellowship, an opportunity to work on ironbound boxing for the next year under the Hoover Institute, um, with the effort of, uh, promoting a free society through our efforts here in Newark and God willing, our ability to scale our impact across the country. But I gotta be honest with y'all, man. I, uh, I don't know if I ever thought Stanford was a place for me or that Hoover was a place for me or hell, that even being an entrepreneur was a place for me. You know, for a lot of the places I found myself in lately, I've always thought that they were for other people. And I think part of that is because I never saw people that look like me in certain places or when I did, I thought they were other And other in a sense of like, oh, if you're going to be at these places or if you're going to be a venture capitalist or, you know, you're going to be at a place like the Hoover Institute, you got to talk a certain way, walk a certain way and act a certain way. I never really imagined that, you know, somebody like myself could end up at a place like the Hoover Institute. And it's funny because this is my second time doing a program at Stanford, the first time in 2017. And uh, when I did the Stanford Ignite program, where I was there for four weeks, learned about entrepreneurship. But this was different, you know, like that first one I did, you know, I was nervous. I didn't feel like I belonged. I was uh, intimidated. Right. But once I got there, you know, I was able to get a great network and, uh, you know, I had my confidence built a little bit. But when I was at the Hoover Institute this past week, getting onboarded, man, I just felt like It was for me. I felt like I belonged. And it's interesting when you can see the contrast between, you know, who you were before and the thoughts and limiting beliefs you held and then where you are now. Myself staring at myself in the mirror because, to be honest, like, I didn't recognize myself. It's like, who are you? And it got me a little bit emotional, to be honest, because I just never... I just, I thought stuff was not possible. You know, I, uh, I've i spoken about this before, but when I was leaving the military, I never thought I was smart enough to go to an elite business school. So I didn't even bother taking the GMAT. And my best friend, Philip Jones, tried to get me to study the GMAT with him in Okinawa, but I just wasn't feeling it. I was too much in my head. I had bought into the belief that I wasn't smart that I wasn't going to be able to get a good test score. Um, and deep down, maybe I copped out, right? But, you know, when I found myself at Stanford this time, at the at the Hoover Institute, and just being honest, right, like this last month or, you know, several months, I've been doing a lot of pitch competitions as a judge, right? People have reached out to me asking me to sit in on these uh, competitions. And, you know, I've just, my how do I say this? Right. Like after being on the other side of the veil, right. Working all these pitch competitions too, right. Like, you know, going to an elite business school doesn't necessarily make you a good entrepreneur, you know, and I've realized just how much value I bring and how much I know. Um, and it's a, it's a, it's a paradigm shift for me as my confidence is growing. You know, it's crazy when you're like doing pitch competitions with people that went to elite business schools and you just start to see how much that You know, a lot of people out there don't know about the basics of starting and growing a business. Um, A lot of people are classroom smart. You know, we can get good grades and this and that. But when it comes to bringing things to life, right, like it's fair game, you know, because there there's things that you can't learn inside a classroom. There's some of the stuff that you just got to learn through experience. And, you know, that's been me. I've just I've just had to learn a lot through experience, but I've also been able to dial in my own learning. And so this world of possibilities has been opening up to me lately. And it's forced me to just kind of reevaluate the way I've been approaching life. And, you know, it's like if if, let's say you fell a test or your friend fell a test, right? We talk them up. We remind them how smart they are, right? We let them know everything's going to be okay. But when it's us and we fell a test, sometimes we talk to ourselves the worst. We're not the best at giving ourselves uh positive pep talks, you know? And I don't know if it just comes with being like a high performer or maybe just our society, but we we all have a habit of really beating ourselves up. And for what, you know? And so now like I don't know, man, I'm just I'm just so freaking humbled and I'm so thankful and I am appreciative of all the struggles that I've had to to go through to get to where I'm at today. And it's kind of making me realize just what's possible. And I think to put it in perspective, you know, when I left the military, I'll never forget that hell and farewell at 1st Battalion, 8th Marines. You know, and a hell and farewell is when all the officers, they have a a party for you. Everyone's there is dressed up um, in our uniforms. And typically it's like midday. And, uh, you know, the battalion, they said some nice words about me. My boys Phil and Tom had a plaque and they, uh, you know, said some words as well. And when I stood up in front of that helen farewell, I let everybody know that, you know, I was leaving the military and I was moving to Newark, New Jersey to start a boxing gym. And I just remember the whispers around the room, you know, even afterwards about like, well, how are you going to make money? What that process is going to look like? But I don't know. I just kind of stepped out on faith and I knew I was going to be able to do something. I didn't exactly know what it would look like. But I would have never imagined that that decision to not go the safe route, right, go the untraditional route and still end up where I'm at today really is a testament to what's possible. And I don't want to say that like coming across cheesy. And for me, I think this is why I bring up Roger Bannister, right? Like I always, you know, being in America, you know, people always tell you what's possible. You can be anything you want to be, do whatever you want, et cetera but I don't know if I necessarily believed it if I really deep down in my soul believed it you know I think it would be nice to be a a venture capitalist one day and uh invest in black-owned businesses and minority-owned businesses but I don't know if I actually believe that like I would be a, a black venture capitalist I think it's a thing then like to shoot for or you know that I could you know be the next Jim Collins or be the next Peter Drucker and write these prolific books and record prolific podcasts and really just kind of move the culture forward through my thoughts. And then all of a sudden you find yourself at a place like Stanford, recognized for your talents and your efforts, doing what it is you do that was so different from everyone else. And it still gets you to this place. And it is, it is. excuse my language, it was fucking me up last week. Because, like, I just did not believe that it was possible. Not someone like me. Like, I've never been recognized for anything academically in my entire life. And yet, here I am at an institution celebrated, you know, all over the country, all over the world, or at least not celebrated, but recognized for its intellectual prowess. And the thing was, like, I wasn't intimidated, I felt like I belonged. I felt like I was amongst my peers. And not in a sense of like, oh, I, I know the ins and outs of this economic policy, etc. But I know I bring a certain level of agency and I know where I stand. And I know that my experience is, you cannot discredit my human experience at this point. The experience of, you know, walking to my office in downtown Newark, then uh, catching a, a lift or getting in my car and going to my boxing gym to coach and how I, I basically travel through different classes every single day. I pass homeless people at the park in Newark. I go upstairs to my gym, it's corporate people. I mean, my office um, in uh, the Gateway Center, a lot of corporate people. Then I get at the gym, you know, you got kids from all different spectrums and I know how to articulate my experiences. And so, you know, and I read so much and I learn so much. So I'm just, I'm just not intimidated you know, I know my lane and I know what I bring, but to find myself in that space, right? Like it was just like, man, it's just super humbling. And like, I will be honest, like I got a little emotional, you know, when I was by myself, just going back to that, like, it's, it's, it's it's almost like you feel a part of you dying. That's the best way I can describe it is you, those limiting beliefs dying with you, you know? And the other aspect of it for me was like, um, I realize that anything I do moving forward at this point in life is really on me. And has it always been on me is the other thing to think about. Some of you out there would probably say, yeah, for sure. But it's different when you have that pedigree from the Naval Academy, you know, United States Naval Academy graduate, Marine Infantry officer, you know, graduate of Rutgers, Newark, um, Hoover veteran fellow, you know, like that is a, like a pedigree and a resume that I I can never hide from, you know? Um, and it's one of those things of like, no one is ever going to look at me and say like, Oh, you don't have an opportunity. You know, like I don't, I don't have a crutch anymore. And maybe that's why I was getting a little emotional because maybe I had been holding on to crutches too long like I said, the stuff about I'm not smart or, you know, I come from a single parent home and I, I come from all this other stuff. And I'm not trying to be that corny black dude that stands on stage and says, you can be anything that you want to be right. And never really talks about the negative, but like, I don't even at this point, man, like, I don't know even know if I'm appreciative of the negative stuff that happened to me, like the Marine Corps sending me to the rifle range and the blatant racism I experienced, um, being a black officer or just being an American citizen. But like right now, man, my mentality is like, so fucking what, you know, so what I'm still here. And if I can still be here doing, um, everything I've done and the way I did it, like I maybe, maybe there is something to this American dream that people tell us about. Maybe it is possible, but until you see that mental model, until you see Roger Brandis to break the four minute mile, it's hard to see it and believe it. And the other aspect of this is that, like, I'm a big proponent of the human experience. I keep keep talking about that. And the human experience has been documented. And, you know, when you actually spend time with people you admire or go to these places that you thought were so special or whatever, and you realize they're just humans. You know, I had a chance to meet H.R. Uh, McMaster. Uh, during the fellowship and uh, it was just amazing super humbling and he was curious about my perspectives on a paper he had just published you know um, in the Wall Street Journal or one of these other outlets about the warrior ethos and so I owe him an email about it but just like when someone looks you in the eye shakes your hand and talks to you like a human being actuals talk to actuals in the Marine Corps um, you just realize that like the agency and stuff you bring and so like, for me, man, I just, I see everyone as human. I don't see anyone as better than me anymore. Um, I just see them as as different. You know, they chose a different route, and that's okay. Good on them. But I, it is forcing me to rethink just a lot of stuff, you know, because the other aspect of it is, like, I'll be honest with y'all, you know, being an entrepreneur, running a nonprofit, is not the sexiest thing in the world. You know, I look around my apartment right now. I'm like, I need to clean up my apartment. I got books everywhere. I still need to unpack, right? I still need to do all this stuff. It's not like I'm coming home to some giant mansion, you know, in Newark or whatever. It's like you come back, back to the grind. But like, this is life. This is it. This is real, right? Just because you can live in a one-bedroom apartment doesn't make you any less than anyone, right? Like, you can still do magical things, You know, and I had a couple articles come out. I just had one come out about uh, my podcast agency, Ironbound Media. And then, uh, you know, I did that video shoot with the New Jersey Devils and all this other stuff. And it's like, there's no fluff there. You know, I, I'm, I fucking work out of my apartment a lot of times or in my office in, uh, in downtown Newark. Right. There's no massive staff, right. There's nothing slick or sexy about what I'm doing, but I'm still doing it, man. I'm making amazing impact. And it's just, damn, man, I don't know, man. It's just, the, the I can feel the ground moving underneath me. And, like, how do you comprehend that? And how do I carry this message forward? You know, I think, you know, going back to the Roger Bannister references, I do think there's a power in having, like, representation in certain places. And that's why I stress that so much in terms of, you know, when I was in the military or even at the Naval Academy, right? Why it's so good to to have people. Like, everyone talks about diversity and inclusion, diversity and inclusion. I hate the DEI movement for the sake as as if it's an other thing, right? Like, don't bring me in a company to be the head of DEI. Bring me into a company to be a CMO, right? Or to be a vendor or something, right? But don't create this separate thing uh, for black people, Right? Because you have a mental model that we can't perform any certain roles or we're only good for HR, right? Or we're just gonna do the DEI thing and host the talks and all that other stuff to look more diverse than we really are. That's not what I'm talking about. But there is a power that happens when you see someone who looks like you in a position that you did not think was possible, right? And that they're really good at their job and they earn their spot there. And it just shows you what's possible. And the cop out a lot of times with spaces that you can't find the talent. And I call bullshit. There's talent out there. You just got to go nowhere to look. And you can't do it in a traditional setting, in a method that hasn't worked previously. I've told y'all, right, when it comes to recruiting kids for Thrive, yeah, I can throw up some stuff on social media, but they're not going to sign up. You know, you might got to go out to the basketball park or something or go to where they are, meet them where they at where they're at and pull them into our programs and show them what's possible. But a lot of times I feel like when we talk about black people in certain roles, right? There is no real reach out, right? We expect, uh, you know, marginalized communities to just come straight to us, but no, you got to be out there. You got to be seen. And in the words of Elijah Muhammad from the book, the autobiography of Malcolm X, when you see someone drinking out of a glass of uh dirty water, Don't tell them they're drinking out of a glass of dirty water. Show them a glass of clean water water, and let them decide for themselves. And that's what I am on these days, you know? And like, damn, man, it's just, I just fucking would have never imagined. You know, and I'll tell y'all too, man, I don't remember when the first time I came across Thomas Sowell. I probably heard, uh, some black conservative talking about him. I think it was Candace Owens. I think Candace Owens was at this, uh, she was having a debate with uh, Killer Mike and T.I., and I think she named dropped Thomas Sowell. And so I went looking on YouTube. Or I Googled his name in, and I saw his stuff pop up and realized he was black. And I started going down the YouTube rabbit hole and looking at a lot of the material and stuff he put out. And uh, he has some prolific ideas, right? I'm not going to discredit his human experience about the welfare state and how we have so many people that are employed by the welfare state that is preventing the funds from going to the people who is actually meant to go to. Now, you can agree or disagree, um, but he brought a lot of attention to it. And the thing that I do, do think he brings agency to is the fact that he worked in the welfare state for a little bit. So he's speaking from firsthand experience. But I have always been critical of the fact that I feel like American racism in 2021 is getting black people to talk negatively about other black people on platforms, particularly white platforms, so racists don't have to. It's a way to uh, circumvent it. It's maneuver warfare. Just get black conservatives to just bash, bash black people tell them to pick themselves up by their bootstraps and that they're the problems for all their issues. And, you know, just basically bash black people openly. And I'm not a fan of that, right? If you're going to criticize black America, you need to go on a black owned platform. You need to stand in that heat in my opinion, but I will tell you, Thomas Sowell, Glenn Lowry, who I hope to um, get to meet. You know, a lot of these guys have spoken in black platforms. I'm sure because they have a long history of, uh, of uh, you know, being black intellectuals. You can see some of their old YouTube videos online, you know, and I, the way I describe it is I feel like, you know, we're all trying to get to the same place, right? How do we improve the economic and social outcomes of black Americans so that we can get out of the slums, we can get out of the ghettos, and we can reach our potential at scale? I think you're a different type of black person if you can just live your life and be okay with the majority of our people incarcerated or living in poverty, and you know that's just okay, right? like it it bothers me, right? And if it doesn't bother you, you're just a different type of person. and you know we're all just coming at it from different angles, you know, the black intellectuals, the Lowry and the soul they're focused on the economics. you got you know the 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 black lives matter movement walking in the streets, right? But wherever you agree or disagree with the term Black Lives Matter or the movement, I will tell you as a black veteran, right? Black Lives Matter means something to me. I can't speak about the organization. I don't know much about them, who they are, what they do, but the term Black Lives Matter means something to me. And it is not negative, okay? I was at my desk when Michael Brown uh, was killed. And, you know, my opso asked me what I thought about the situation. I didn't feel comfortable speaking my truth in that environment. Right. I just didn't. There was, I didn't have enough agency there, you know, and the fact that like we're for some, one of the things that frustrates me and why I have to have this platform is, you know, as a veteran, right, saying black lives matter doesn't mean that blue lives don't matter. That police officers and first responders or white life doesn't matter. It's just bringing attention to saying that, hey, we should not be getting killed by the state, period. No one should be getting killed by the state. I don't care if you were caught with drugs or whatever, right? It's not like my, uh, a George Floyd was doing a, 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 a mass murder or something and got choked out by the police. Was he a little high, right? Probably had been drinking, yeah, but doesn't deserve to die like that. And the police officers was held to a higher standard, right? I'm held to a higher standard. Just like I'm a Naval Academy grad, a Marine officer, right? I'm held to a higher standard. I think it's okay to say, hey, police officers should be held to a higher standard, no matter who they're dealing with. I'm not upset about black on black violence, right? I am triggered by it, right? But why do black people get triggered by the police? Because you're held to a higher standard, I expect the crackhead or the drug dealer to kill someone because that's who he is. That's what he does. I don't expect that from the police. And I think that's fair to say. So I'm tired of getting put against like one or the other, right? That is not me. And that's why I have this platform um, to be able to express that. But again, going back to the point, Black Lives Matter, the black intellectuals, you know, the entrepreneurs, right? We're all trying to do the best we can with what we have. And so part of that is also for me is having empathy to a lot of these intellectuals, right? What is the shift, you know? And maybe I need to read the book Maverick where it talks about uh soul's life, you know, and I know it has something to do with him uh, working in the welfare state, but there was a shift that a lot of these intellectuals went through to change their thinking. And you know what? Maybe that is just part of the human experience, right? Who I am today is a lot different than who I was, you know, 12 months ago, three months, three years ago. But I hear intellectuals talking about their shifts from Marx and Leninism and all this stuff, right? Like, I don't know. It's kind of like they're they're, they're so fixed on these like ideologies that they matter. And to me, they don't matter, right? We're just learning and growing. They've shifted their perspectives over time. But I just want to, I don't want to be unduly, uh, critical of these guys if they have been out there taking that heat engaging black audiences and um now they 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 fell back to you know the intellectual ivory towers or created their own platforms with majority white owned audiences because they feel comfortable and you know what I will tell you if you've been doing this work reading writing pushing the culture forward for years right maybe you retire maybe you get out the heat but I will tell you, when I was at Stanford, right, I was I was asking some of the people at the Hoover Institute if they ever uh, saw Thomas Sowell and he's a recluse. And what really hit me was and I never thought about this. Somebody said, uh, yeah, he doesn't come around a lot. And one of the reasons is because he uh, he gets a lot of hate mail. And that kind of made me sad a little bit. And because it 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 made him human to me. You know, and maybe that's one of the reasons why, you know, you don't really see him out. And I know he's older and everything, but I never thought about that, you know, getting just prolific hate mail. And this isn't like social media hate mail. This is probably people writing to you, people trying to discredit you to where you can't even go out in public. And there, there's, there's probably some trauma there. And it just, I just had to take a moment about it. I never... I never thought about that, right? You know, I'm Iron Mike Stedman, right? I'm a boxing coach. I'm a Marine guy. I've kind of been out here, you know, doing what I do. And I haven't gotten too much hate mail yet. I've had people send me uh emails that are like, I don't know, maybe it's the new new, it's the new uh hate mail, right? Where it's kind of like polite, but it's also trying to discredit like your um, I don't know, it's was trying to get you to validate their opinion or something. <laughs> that's that's the new hate mail in uh 2021. But, you know, I I I I haven't experienced it like like these guys. And so I need to talk to them about it, man. I need to to learn about it. But I will tell you too, the other thing was, you know, there's this photo of us, all the Hoover fellows out there, and uh Hoover veteran fellows correction. And uh actually, yeah, it was a photo of all the veterans because we celebrated uh Veterans Day. And to have my picture there on the same list of like all these prolific intellectuals, historians, you know, associated with the Hoover Institute, the senior fellows, et cetera. And it's basically that like, see me on something like that. I'm looking at it and I'm just like, I just remember when I was sitting in my apartment in Newark watching these videos, you know, watching uh, Goodfellas or watching, you know, Thomas old go in on black America. And now here you are with your picture you know, next to him. And it's like, man, like, I don't know. Proud. And I, you know, I guess while I'm on it, you know, I should probably just go ahead and uh, kind of talk to about what I learned. You know, I didn't know a lot about the Hoover Institute before I went out there. Uh, a lot of stuff I was learning, I was just trying to pull online, right? I listened to a couple of podcasts with Connalisa Rice, you know, I saw the YouTube videos. Right. And uh, I just assumed it was a far right think tank. And when I went out there, I didn't know exactly what to expect. So, you know, I did two weeks in Grenada with my girlfriend, for my first vacation, like in a long time, probably like three years. And I came back and then went um, went straight out to Stanford. And I'll tell you, man, I went like, I've drank the Kool-Aid, man. They treated us like Kings and Queens. It was just such a warm reception from the staff um, and everyone out at the Hoover Institute. And I went out there, man. I was, y'all I was up, I was up, uh, I was at Macy's at like nine fifty nine, buying blazers and uh, button downs and everything else I could get my hands on um, to go out there because I just didn't have a professional dress. Right. Like, not for that, you know, or at least not what I thought I needed to have, you know. I spend most of my days at my podcast studio and then I don't even come back to my apartment. I just go straight to the gym. So I look, you know, I could I don't I look like a boxing coach. I'm just gonna leave it at that. But when I was going out to Stanford, I was like, I gotta dress up, you know, I gotta level up. Um, but we get out there, man, and again, everyone was so warm, right? Had my mohawk fade, had my beard. But the fact that I show up at a place like that and they greet me as Iron Mike Stedman. You know, and my badges and everything was Iron Mike. I was like, man, y'all just gave me some agency here. You know, this place is for me. And to be honest, right, like this was perfect for me. It was perfect for me. Main reason being like I don't do good in the traditional classroom. Let me stop saying I don't do good at things cuz that's a negative uh mental model. Maybe I do great. I just I'm just better at experimental uh, learning opportunities, you know, uh, the cohort based model where I can get a little in-person engagement. But then I actually can go out and work on my projects instead of just being in class, working on schoolwork all the time. Right. That's for the birds. It's not for me. So we get out there and, you know, right off the bat, you know, have a great dinner to kick it off. Got to meet the deputy director of the Hoover Institute And he's a historian. Right. So me and him are chopping it up. We're talking about history, getting to meet my fellow uh, cohort members. And there's 10 of us total. And one of the things that the director. Sorry, the deputy director um, let us know was, um, you know, just kind of like about the history of the Hoover Institute and how it was established by President Hoover after World War One to prevent another world war from happening. Now, obviously that didn't happen, right? You know, they are supposed to collect these archives so we could study the first world war and, you know, um, uh, keep history from repeating itself. But just human nature, for some reason, we just can't help but try to kill each other. Um, and so, but they they have the institute set up, you know, to, to, to prevent that. And I guess over the years, you know, it's just grown to be this, 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 public policy uh, think tank and uh, you know they're known more for like foreign policy as well and high level you know national security and uh, you know national issues that like if you're the White House right you want to talk to the Hoover Institute like you want to have a closed door meeting to talk about economics and uh, taxable taxing America and all that other stuff right but we realize that they have a gap inward in America, what's going on, which is the, the, at the local level, you know, there's all these battles about critical race theory. And then, you know, um, do people still have trust and confidence in the government and serving in the military and like all this stuff that we've been dealing with, you know, the death of George Floyd and the the racial unrest. Right. Um, and they just, in my opinion, right. They've just realized that, Hey, we just, we just don't have a good foothold on the local communities. You know, at the local level, what's going on in America and we're worried about it. And so what they've done is they've recruited 10 veterans from all over the country to come and fall under the Hoover Institute umbrella to work on projects that, you know, are a testament to, I guess, putting America first, you know, really just um, promoting this idea of like a free society. You know, it's one thing to say America is the greatest country in the world, but it's another thing to neglect it. You know, and so not to say that they've been neglecting it, but just at the community and local level. Right. We've got to have like a, a a footprint. Right. Like, are we losing as a society? Right. Are we getting off track and losing what's possible? You know, I will tell you, right, like entrepreneurship has been extremely hard for me. You know, Ironbound Boxing has been extremely hard because a lot of people have snubbed their nose at boxing. Right, boxing is a poor man's sport. Right, so you know it's like if you are an entrepreneur and you identify in a growing market where there's a market demand. Right, the the venture takes for itself. The money takes for case of itself. But when you're swimming upstream with something like boxing, right, like yeah, the community wants it, but do we as a society value it? Do we do we put money towards it? Right, and the answer is is no. Not at the 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 amateur level. Maybe a little bit of money at the professional level, but not at the amateur level. So I've just been constantly just kind of swimming upstream, right? But there's still impact and agency in the sport and 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 what I'm doing. So, you know, tapping someone like me to bring these kind of learnings uh, and under the Hoover Institute, right? Like it has shown me of what's possible. And I guess that this stuff does kind of, you know, matter, right? And I just didn't, I never thought that um, it would work. I never thought it would work, not to this level. now I'm a believer. I'm a believer. And so um, after, you know, after the dinner and learning a little bit about that, we had opportunity to uh, um, meet some of the different fellows associated with the Hoover Institute. You know, like I said, I got to meet uh, H.R. McMaster. They had some other guests come talk to us. I think that was the first day. I thought we met McMaster the second day. But the first day was really just um, framing our our project. You know, um, we had some, I forgot the lady's name. I hope I get her on this podcast. Um, one of the economists at the Hoover Institute, she gave a presentation on a project she's working on. We met, uh, no, she's actually working on the, uh, what is it she's working on? You know, running the models on what happens if you increase the minimum wage tax. That's what it is and what it does to our labor force. How, you know, if they increase minimum wage, you know, it's really going to accelerate the number of jobs that are going to get automated to technology. So that there are other alternative ways to address the issue without raising minimum wage, but more incentivizing uh, people who hold on to their capital to deploy it more um, into ventures and take more risk, et cetera. But, you know, hopefully I'll get her on to talk about that. But she gives this amazing presentation. I just want to stand up and just clap. You know, we had some of the different uh veteran fellows, uh senior fellows. If they're listening, they're probably gonna beat me up because I'm th- I'm throwing out the names, senior fellows and this and that, right? I'm not the guy to be assigning titles or speaking inherently about titles yet. So don't beat me up. But we had veterans at the Hoover Institute um that are fellows speak to us, right? And talk us about the work they were doing. I got to meet the guy, um, Joe Felter, who uh Dr. Joe Felter, I believe who um, you know started hacking for defense. So technology, uh, design thinking, et cetera, to encourage innovation in the military. So he talked to us. Um, we had some other people talk to us. We got to go see the archives and I'm just, I'm nerding out y'all because like I'm a history guy. So we got to see a little bit of some of the archives. They pulled out some stuff from World War II and uh, they actually have um, firing line by William F. Buckley. Right. They have the copyright to Buckley's Fireline series. And I've watched a lot of those on uh, on YouTube. And one of the things I've always given credit to Buckley for is I'm not a fan of his per se, right? Like I don't agree with his views and the way he thinks, right? If I I feel like he projects the kind of white supremacy mentality that a lot of people were pushing back against. However, one of the things I do respect Buckley for is He had everyone on his platform, Huey Newton, Muhammad Ali, Eldridge Cleaver, every black radical you can probably think of, he invited on uh, his show, Firing Line. And it wasn't sound bites. I mean, they had full on hour long conversations. And, you know, I think what I couldn't tell, right, is did he invite these guys on because he thinks he's smarter than them? He's going to prove them wrong. Or maybe his public persona was just. That, it was just a persona. Who knows, right? But either way, that's pretty cool to learn about. And I'm going to be able to run some of his episodes on this podcast. I already know I'm going to get the Muhammad Ali one. And, you know, they told me that of all the episodes, right, that is the highest downloaded one or engage one with the most views is his interview with Muhammad Ali. So hopefully I can run that on as well as the uh, Huey P. Newton and some of the other ones. Got to see all that stuff. So got to see that. That was cool. Then we went back and we planned... Uh, I think we had like some very nice lunches and all that was the catered and taken care of. But then we had to present our projects. And this is where I uh the I, I realized the change. When I got brought out to Stanford Ignite in 2017, I got brought out for ironbound boxing. Okay. But I was nervous. I didn't know anything about Stanford, I didn't even know about pitching. I didn't know anything right? And again, posture syndrome is all there in your head. And I can show you, I have it, I'll put the link in my show notes, the video of the first time they made me pitch ironbound. And I literally, I was not confident. They were just like, go, boom. Right. And I just pitched and I had, you know, my peers there as well too. And it didn't go pretty. And we had a coach there. We had to work with us on how to pitch, etc. And they recorded these pitches every time we did it. I get out to the Hoover Institute. We walk into this room. And this looks like the closed door room where like they meet with like the heads of state, you know. Um, it's got the little microphones. It looks like a UN, like a little mini UN table where like all the prolific leaders sit around the table to engage one another. It's like a, a screen in the back, giant PowerPoint. And they make us present our projects, our capstone projects that we're going to work on under the fellowship to uh, three senior, to three fellows. Let me stop using those words, three fellows. So the first one goes, presents, um, and then I'm called up to present next. And they just pick names out of a hat, basically. And let me tell y'all, man, when I presented, I was so freaking confident. And not confident from a sense of like, oh, I've got this all figured out. I'm the shit. It was more confident from a sense of like, I feel like Muhammad Ali. You know, there's a speech where before he fights George Foreman, he says, I'm, you know, everybody thinks he's g- gonna lose. Right. And they ask him, you know, how what does he think about his chance against George Foreman? And he goes, I'm a professional now. Jaw been broke, been knocked down. I'm bad, you know. And I'm going to show you, all you chumps are going to bow. All you chumps are going to bow when I show them, you know, when he talks about wrestling with an alligator and all of that stuff. And what he was getting at was he wasn't the young kid anymore from Louisville, Kentucky. He had taken his licks in life and in the ring, and they were dealing with a different, more physically and mentally strong version of Muhammad Ali. And so when I opened my mouth, and I started talking about my project, the Ironbound Courage Academy, I was confident because I've been beat up. I already know nobody's going to save you. I got to save myself. You know, no one's saving Ironbound. It's on us. I've worked with some amazing organizations, Everlast, Dig Sporting Goods, uh, been on national news, right? All that other stuff, right? But at the end of the day, what drives results is getting it done. You know, our kids getting it done in the ring, getting it done on the marketing and writing the emails in the newsletter. So I know what it takes. So when I presented, right, I wasn't blowing blowing smoke and I just spoke my truth. And, you know, I just remember my peers in the cohort looking around and uh, and I had a book too, y'all. I had this, and I maybe I'll put that in the show notes as well. I got this brand playbook that tells the Ironbound story and then also has the graphics for the Courage Academy, et cetera. So I'm carrying around these books. I already knew I brought them. I honestly just wanted to give them all to Connelly Lisa Rice. But I was like, let me take these to, to, to Stanford with me. And uh, right before I got ready to present, I go to my backpack and I grab these books and I hand them out. And I tell them, I, I tell the fellows like, turn to page 44 and then give my presentation. And uh, one of my co members started laughing at me about it. But it was just different, man. You know, I was confident I did my thing. Right. And it it just it just made me feel like, yo, this is where you belong, man. You can hang at this level. Right. This is your level. This is where you've been all the time. Sometimes we just have to find it out ourselves. So uh, everyone went, everyone presented. We're working on different projects from human trafficking to uh, uh, the fire issues out in California to uh, what's another one? Um, the refugee crisis, right? All this other stuff, all these projects. And maybe I'll get some of my cohort members on here to talk about their projects too. That's the benefit of having a platform like this, right? There are no rules in audio. We can do whatever we want with this with this platform. Um, but hopefully I'll get some of them on here. Um, and then the next day, right? We spent the day getting some learning, right? We had the guests uh come in. That was when HRV Master came in, had Neil Ferguson come in to talk about uh, his presentation on Cold War, Cold War II. That was pretty cool. Got some design thinking work done. That was really cool for me. And again, that's another thing of like, you know, when you're going through these incubators and accelerators, you spend a lot of time with this like design thinking and this business model canvas, et cetera. But one of the things you don't have is that like feedback loop, right? You don't have the experience of actually like being in the venture day to day to understand what works, what doesn't work, et cetera. Then go into like a business model canvas. I feel like people give you that stuff early on on the front end, but when you're in the hustle, right? Not a lot of us kind of like go to the business model canvas. Well, I just appreciated. Uh, we didn't have the business model canvas, but we had the design thinking canvas. And now, because I got that experience, right? I really appreciated that time to sit down and and work on it and really frame the problem that we're addressing with the Courage Academy, bringing. You know, that kind of innovation and bringing that agency to our kids in downtown Newark through boxing, creating the space that they that they want to be in, but also saying, okay, how do we think about the funders and uh, the donors and the network and all these different stakeholders that are going to be involved to bringing this to life? Like, what is the problem that keeps them up at night? You know, what are the, the opportunities to reach them, et cetera? So for me, right, I really appreciate that because when I'm back here in Newark, I'm in the hustle and bustle a lot of times, which is why it's hard for me to get these solo episodes out because I'll have a plan to do a solo episode, but then like if I'm not in the right mind state or something, I try to do it and I just can't get it done. But, um, but being out there, right, I just prioritize, right? I feel like I unplugged because it's just such a prolific opportunity to fall under, you know, the Hoover and Stanford network right? Like this is how I believe, right? Y'all know that I applied for the Echoing Green Fellowship and I didn't get it. And I applied three years in a row and I was devastated. But this is feels like my Echoing Green, right? This is my Echoing Green for me and my tribe. And so like, I, I know and I got to take advantage of this opportunity. And so, um, you know, I really leaned in and I poured into it. And then after we, we wrapped up, you know, we had some really nice dinners. So there was some great talks and everything, but we're definitely getting work done out there. Um, I had opportunity to uh, go see my mentor, Christopher Lockhead, author of Play Bigger. Y'all should check that out and uh, spend some time with him. Um, he's the one that helped me come up with the, the name, the Courage Academy, because we're creating a new uh, category for youth and young adults, particularly black and brown kids, uh, to give them courage, right? I can imagine Courage Academies all over the country. And when you think of Courage Academy it's the first the first brand you think of is uh, Ironbound Boxing. So I spent some time out there with him. And, you know, it's funny. I, I had a conversation with him when we were out there and I told him, you know, I've been struggling with my BHAG, which stands for Big Hairy Audacious Goal. Not so much in the nonprofit front, right? Like I want to impact 10,000 newer youth and young adults over the next, you know, five five years. But for me and just like my personal life and my business, Ironbound Media is like, what is my BHAG? And so I just kind of went back to my personal and was like, you know, I would love to be able to take home, I don't know, 30K a month. Right. And then that way I would have money to put towards savings and I would have a a safe cushion to start investing in uh, uh, other founders of color, particularly black founders. I'm going to say black founders, African-American, native born descendants of slavery founders to fix this economic issue we have for black people. Um, I would love to be able to invest in them And then also veterans And what it really comes down to Is people I believe in That I want to give a chance to That I want to help You know, I would love to be able to do that And I made that comment And he looked me dead in my eye He's like, Mike, I want you to look at me No, look at me right here He's like, you're not going to be taking home $30,000 a month You're going to be taking home $100,000 a month And he's like, he's like looking at me He's like, you're going to take home $100,000 a month And when he said that it sounds so audacious now, but I, I had a similar incident happen when I went to the national championships my first time in college. Again, I didn't make it to the finals. I, I got knocked out the first round my freshman year. And when they were doing that march of champions, where all the boxing um finalists, the finalists for that evening, were shaking hands in the ring and walking to the ring. You know, we're, we're there watching the finals. And as those handshakes are taking place, my coach looks at me and says, that's going to be you next year. And when he said it, I internalized it. And sure enough, I was a national champ next year. And so sometimes people say this stuff to us and it actually comes to fruition. Here's another thing I'll tell you. I was talking to my buddy Glenn Warrior about it on the flight back from Cali. And I told him I was getting a little emotional you know, when I was by myself out at uh out at Stanford. And, you know, we were talking about it, we we're chatting back and forth. And, you know, I told him about, um, I think I told him that, that same story. But he also had me think about something else just to describe it. My freshman year, my very first boxing match, I lost in that 20, 30 seconds to Tim Green. And if you want to hear that story, go back and listen to to Boxing with Love. If you would have told Mike Steadman that night, climbing out of the ring in going out back and crying and bawling his eyes out, right? If the next day you would have told me that I was going to be a national champ and then you showed it to me on video, like if I could see into the future and see myself, I would get emotional, that kind of feeling, right? That emotional feeling of like, I'm here now and this feels really, really low. But then you see yourself in the future and it makes you emotional what's possible. And I used to play those kind of visualizations in my head is what made me so good at boxing. I would picture my, my hand getting raised and it would make me emotional just thinking about it. But being in my hotel room, you know, for the out there for the fellowship, that's what it felt like. It felt like, you know, me, I felt like, Woe is me, Mike Stedman. you know, sitting outside the ATM with my mom at 11.59 so we could go get something to eat. Or, you know, not having to get my video game console pawned so we can pay the rent and all this other stuff. Or me getting relieved in Afghanistan or me not being smart enough to, to, to take the GMAT or, you know, all this just stuff that has happened in my life that I viewed as negative. And to still see me there at that level, working on something that was meaningful to me, I just couldn't, it made me emotional just thinking about it. And I would just stare at myself in the mirror. I just was like, I just could not figure it out. Who are you? And I think we think we know who we are, but really it's not until we put ourselves in that heat and we force that transformation that we're forced to really see ourselves for who we really are. And the crazy part about it, people meme, they're like, You're only 34. And I still sometimes I still feel like an old soul, right? But there's still a lot left. Hopefully, God willing. Hopefully, there's a lot more impact. And I'll tell you this too. Um, one of the nights. I think it was Veterans Day. We had a dinner. And show up to, I forgot the building we're at, cocktail hour and everything. And I'm there. And uh, I'm literally look around the room, right? And I was the only black person in the room, literally. But here was the difference. It was a different feeling for me being the only black person in the room and doing it my way. So I didn't feel it. As much. Like, I I observed it, but people were coming up to me, introducing themselves. Everybody called me Iron Mike, you know? And that was like a silent head nod. See, that's the Roger Bannister moment right there, too, because, you know, I didn't shuck and jive, right? I didn't get on a media network and bash black people and get put on a pedestal. I've been out here in the trenches, in the grind, doing my love, following my passion and I still made it. And so that was just like that kind of silent head nod that you have to yourself. And I guess there is possible, man. It's possible. The sky is the limit. But until you see people break it, you don't know. Always making himself available to talk to me. And he said, you know, he already knew you can he already knew you could break the 4 minute mile. Because he'd seen his dad do it and his grandfather starting their businesses down in Georgia, doing very well for themselves, making themselves financially stable. I hadn't seen it yet. I feel like, you know, we've always just been struggle. And that's maybe there's something there, man. You know, the struggle is what it's all about. You know, we think we're working towards some destination and then we get there and everything's going to be crazy and we're going to feel amazing. Yeah, for maybe a second. You know, while I was out there, too, I finished up Oliver Stone's book, uh, Chasing the Light. And uh, he talks about, you know, his journey making Platoon and all the heartache and adversity he went through to make that movie. Took him 10 years to get it. And he won an Oscar for it. I think he won like two. Maybe it was one. I don't want to butcher it. But, you know, after that. I mean, that was his whole thing. He wanted to be this prolific director and get recognized for his work and make his dream movie. And then he did. And then he made God knows how many movies after that. But yet when he wrote the book, he dedicated it to that moment in time because to him that was the most impactful and that was the hardest time in his life. And so for us as humans, man, there is something to be said about living, appreciating and loving the struggle because we even get the, we even get the opportunity to struggle but i think there is something to be said about those of us who do it by choice versus those of us who have it forced onto us you know and i at least that's what i'm 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 just kind of articulating as i'm thinking through this now but again this is me just thinking out loud man and uh <laughs> i tried to record last week but i i don't know if i was emotional i don't know what it was but that's the other thing it's hard for me to record um on the road, get super intimate. I might be able to, like, do an interview or something, but when I talk about these solo episodes, um, I just feel more comfortable coming and doing it at home. So I'm really glad I was able to get this out. You know, these solo episodes are some of my most proudest ones, just sitting here and just talking into the mic and talking into the void, not knowing who's listening, but uh, getting it done. You know, I'm really proud of that, uh, the uh, Underground Railroad episode I did. And uh I gotta just stop talking about it and get out there and do the the spook who set by the door by Sam Greenley. And so uh go ahead and get that book on Audible or read it. So when I talk about it, you have a good reference point um to think about. So I'm just gonna going to go ahead and uh man, I'm just thankful. I'm blessed. I got no problems. The problems I had have right now. I'm thankful for them. I'm thankful for all of you, the listeners. Thankful for all of you who believe in me and keep sending me words of encouragement. And uh, if there's anything I can do to help support you all, you know, let me know. Shoot me a text. I'll do my best to make myself available. If I can't make myself available, I'll send you some of my other content um, to help you on the way. You know, outside of Confessions of a Native Son, man, I'm making... I just launched Dog Whistle Brandon. I'll probably run the trailer for that on here. I have... uh, I'm doing this podcast for the Academy Investor Network. Um, I just, I'm blessed, man. I'm just blessed. I don't know. I don't know. It's possible. I know stuff might seem hard right now. I know life life might seem hard right now. But if I can do it, if I can become an entrepreneur, which I thought was for other people, then you can it too. And you doesn't have to be an entrepreneur. It can be whatever you're going for in life, man. Just give it a try. You know, what's the worst that can happen? You know, all those poems we learned at the Naval Academy, Man in the Arena by um, Theodore Roosevelt, you know, If by Rudyard Kipling, there's a reason that those points stand the test of time, man, because it's true. It really speaks to the challenges of life. And uh, whenever I'm feeling bad about myself or or just, just second-guessing things, man, I turn to Man in the Arena. And half the battle right there is just doing the deed. Just do the deed. Give it your best shot and take a swing for it. And I'm I'm prepping myself. I'm fucking, I'm not prepping myself. I'm going for it, y'all. I'm going for the Courage Academy. I was scared of it. I didn't know if it was real, if we could really do it. But I'm telling myself, man, if I can't do it this year, maybe it don't need to, maybe it's not meant to get done yet. You know, but what I am gonna do is I'm taking my biggest swing. I'm going for it. I hadn't gone for it before. Cause I was banking on this grant to get, to be able to kick off the project, but I'm, I don't have money yet, but I got something more powerful, man. I got the will. I got the willpower. I got the indomitable spirit and I got the mental model. I've seen the four minute Bob. I've seen the four minute mile broken. I know what's possible. And now it's on me to break it. So I appreciate y'all for tuning in, spending this time with me. Um, I haven't sent out a newsletter I'm not going to say I'm going to send out a newsletter because I didn't send out a last one, but uh, just keep following me, keep following my content. I'd like to acknowledge my sponsors for this episode Ironbound Boxing, my organization, a nonprofit based in Newark, New Jersey, that provides free amateur boxing training, entrepreneur education, and employment opportunities to Newark youth and young adults. You can learn more by visiting my website, ironboundboxing.org. Make a donation today. I'd also like to acknowledge Dope Coffee, a lifestyle brand that pairs urban Black culture with innovative product offerings in the coffee industry. We're not a coffee brand for Black people. We're a coffee brand that seeks to elevate Black culture through a lifestyle of premium coffee and candid conversation. Had an opportunity to participate in their latest crowdfund. Sent over my final documents today. Um, It's one thing to talk about lifting as we climb, but it's another thing to actually do it. And I don't care if it's $250, if it's $1,000, whatever you got to do, man. We got to support each other, support your community. You know, we got to stop looking for other people to save us. And we got to learn how to save each other. And I truly believe in the power of community and this idea that a rising tide lifts all boats. I'm a testament to it. You guys make me stronger. And I appreciate you all for tuning in. So until next time, peace, love, and have a great do rest it, of your week black man hold up my head black man beautiful black man i don't that feel nice man i love your brother black man and chase our dreams black man and get that cream black man we the original man